Okay. There we go. Let's get this party started. Hello, I'm Father Timothy Matkin. And you've tuned in to Matins. This is number 24, I believe, um, on the St. Francis Anglican podcast. And today we're going to do not a movie review, but a movie preview. In other words, I haven't seen it yet. But I want part of the reason I want to talk about it before um, I see it is I want to see if what I thought about it originally matches up with what I think about it afterward. Um, and to see if my propositions and, and uh, suspicions and, and um, insights um, measure up or change or what have you. So now I have a record of what I thought about it before I saw it. Anyway, um, we welcome you to the uh, podcast. Glad you tuned in. Hope you will tune in again. Um, you can listen to us on Apple Podcast or Spotify. And of course, watch us on YouTube. You can comment down below. Also, if you want to email me, you can email, email me at frmatkin at priest.com. Before we get into it, I want to have an opening prayer. And uh, this is from the prayer book uh, service for matrimony, holy matrimony. Uh, let us pray. O gracious and ever-living God, who hast created us male and female in thine image, Look mercifully upon this man and this woman who come unto thee seeking thy blessing, and so assist them with thy grace, that with true fidelity and steadfast love they may honor and keep the promises and vows they make. Through Jesus Christ our Savior, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. A lovely prayer. Of course, it is designed to be used with a couple uh, before the nuptial blessing, before their vows, but um, you can just kind of tweak the, the the words to make it past tense uh, to apply um, again and again for a married couple um, on their anniversary or really any day. Uh, grant that uh, they God would um, bless them and the vows they have made. Also, um, before we get into it, uh, I want to say spoilers in the sense that um, I'm going to talk about homosexuality. So if that's not something you want to hear about, you can tune out now. Also, I'm going to spoil the heck out of this movie. So, you know, there's some things that you don't want to have uh, spoiled for you, and M. Night Shyamalan's movie is, is, is one of those. Um, he is uh, renowned, you know, really known for the, uh, the plot twist. So spoiler alert, if you don't want anything spoiled, then tune out now. So now you're, you, you have no excuse. So I'm going to say, um, the interesting thing about this one, as I understand it, and I've just been reading ahead, and I'm the kind of guy that doesn't mind knowing about the movie before I see it. In fact, I think it helps me follow it better. You know, I'm happy reading the last page of the novel, so I know where I'm going <laughs> before I read the rest of it. Um, but here, the interesting thing is, there's not really a plot twist. In fact, um, you might say he removes a plot twist, as it, as it were, uh, from the novel. And um, the movie proceeds along the same trajectory that you get from the very beginning, uh, almost like, a, you know, you're going to watch a train wreck, and here it comes, and uh, you keep thinking, well, this director, there's, something's going to happen. It's going to veer away. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it just comes to the train wreck. Um <clears throat> This, uh, as I mentioned, the novel, uh, so this, unlike any other of his movies, as far as I'm aware, uh, 
Uh, I think all of the other ones are original stories of Shyamalan. And I've always been a fan of his movies. I don't think I've seen everything. I know I haven't seen Last Airbender, and I think there's at least one early one uh, before he became famous that I haven't seen. <clears throat> but I've always been a fan of his movies. I even like the ones that nobody else seemed to like, like uh, The Happening and uh, The Village. Um, a Lady in the Water. Oh, I really enjoyed that one, Lady in the Water. I think his best one, of course, everybody tends to like The Sixth Sense best. I, for me, my favorite is um, the one about the aliens, um, Signs. And uh, in a sense, it's not really about aliens. Uh, what it's about is an Anglican priest whose wife dies and he loses his faith. And this is his journey of finding it again and discovering meaning in life. Um, and in fact, that's what really uh, religiosity or spirituality is one of the things, at least, that it's all about is, is finding meaning in life. Uh, the puzzle pieces uh, fit together. And um, so that's what the religious perspective is tuned into. And in that sense, Shyamalan is a very religious person. He has um, described himself as, a, as an agnostic, uh, but certainly he is searching for meaning in life. And that's what you see in his uh, films. And I'm sure that re reflects a lot of what he's interested in. And um, so we can certainly consider him a religious person, but not committed to any formal faith. And so as far as this movie is concerned, I have no idea what his perspectives are. And I'm trying to do some just cursory uh, looking around, uh, Googling, uh, to try to find out, does he have any perspective on um, traditional sexual values or not, or is he opposed, is he against? I have no idea. Um, I have no reason to think that he is opposed. I have no reason to think that he is in support. Um, and in fact, if you think about this movie, when I first saw the trailer for it, I'm like, oh, a new one from M. Night Shyamalan. And then, boom, gay couple. I know more, more of this gay stuff. Does everything have to be gay? Um, so I kind of got... Uh, Disillusion, like, oh, nice. here we go. No, another good director, um, just peddling to the masses. But then I thought, well, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is a guy who always comes up with, I think at least, interesting stories. Usually have some kind of twist, some unexpected twist. Often, sometimes, like with signs, the story on the surface level is not the real story. The story is something down below that. Um, oftentimes, there's some subversion, I guess, of expectations, you might say. Um, and also, I learned that this wasn't his original story. So he And he had some co-writers, and I have no idea what their perspectives on things are either. Um, but he took a novel that's already in existence and uh, adapted it for a movie. And so you figure that, well, anytime somebody does that, they're going to tinker with it. They're going to change part of it. Um, and that is the case here as well. But it's not his original story, so why would he choose this? And um, what does he want to say? And does he want to make a statement? I think that's one thing that um, I, I don't think necessarily every author, every filmmaker, uh, and so on, is necessarily making a statement. I think they want to tell a good story. Sometimes maybe they want to make a statement. 
sometimes they are not necessarily intending to make a statement, but of course they have a particular view on things. And sometimes I, I would imagine it's pretty frustrating, pretty odd, if they write a story, tell a story, and they have a particular perspective on things, and then find out that everyone else takes it differently than they were. You know, they, they, in their own quest and search for meaning, they're putting the puzzle pieces together, and they're finding a very different picture. I imagine that's quite frustrating. I remember uh, when we authored a, a statement from the Standing Committee um, about uh, Kenyan Episcopal consecration, and... Uh, put it out there as a press release, and uh, somebody slapped a headline on the story that was almost exactly the opposite of what we were getting at. And I remember being frustrated. I imagine that is the same type of thing that happens with people trying to tell stories, and, and the people who consume the stories find a very different message in it. So I may find a very different message um, from what the authors and filmmakers are trying to get at. But who knows? One of the things I want to um, lay out there, first of all, uh, before we begin to talk about it, is uh, this idea of a particular metaphor that is used in the Bible about uh, sins uh, that cry out to God in heaven for vengeance. Uh, so turning to uh, the Modern Catholic Dictionary, excellent dictionary by Father John Harden, and he has an entry on this, sins crying to heaven. So the four sins traditionally said to cry to heaven for vengeance, or we might say intervention, divine intervention. And these are laid out in order of appearance in the Bible. They are, number one, willful murder, Genesis 4.10. So that's the story of Cain and Abel. And it's, it's beautiful the way the story is laid out. Uh, it's so vivid. And so, of course, Cain kills Abel, and then uh, Cain is talking with God, and God says, Oh, where's your brother Abel? And uh, Cain says, well, how should I know? Am I my brother's keeper? Very famous line, of course. The lesson is, yes, we are our brother's keeper. We are responsible for each other. And God says, listen, do you hear that? No, I don't hear anything. Oh, I can hear it. You can't hear it? What do you hear? What I hear is your brother's blood crying out to me from the ground. Now, it doesn't say what it's crying out, but that's very interesting. It alludes to it later on in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, where it says that the blood of Jesus speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. And so the implication is the blood of Abel cries out, vengeance, give me justice, whereas the blood of Jesus cries out, mercy, give them mercy. So that's the first uh, instance, willful murder. Number two, sodomy or homosexuality or the sin of Sodom, as we find in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and destruction, and God in the three angels comes to visit Abraham, and then he says, I must go down and check out and see whether the outcry that I'm hearing is valid, and if it is, then I need to intervene in the situation. And so we have that story of the destruction of uh, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then number three, oppression of the poor or uh, abuse of slaves, basically, is what we get in the story of the book of Exodus. So this is Exodus 2.23. So the cries of the oppressed slaves in Egypt come all the way up to heaven, and God uh, is drawn to intervene in that situation. And then there's one more in the New Testament. Um, 
defrauding laborers of their wages in James chapter 5, verse 4. And here you have a, a kind of a similar situation of, of oppression where it's not as direct, but it's kind of um, subversive, where you, you, you have workers, but you sort of keep them under your thumb so they just can't get ahead. Um, it, it's almost like this slavery um, by different means in a different way, a metaphorical kind of um, opp uh, oppressive slavery. And so those are the four sins about which that particular biblical metaphor is used, sins crying out to God for vengeance or for divine intervention. So keep that in mind as we look at this story. So if you're not familiar with the story, um, it, it basically follows the novel very uh, precisely up until, um, I don't know, I guess the last third or so when we get toward the resolution. So there's a, there's a as we mentioned, a gay couple, and uh, they have an adopted daughter who's seven, about to have her eighth birthday. And I guess they're going out for a vacation or some special occasion, whatever, to a, a cabin in the woods. And in fact, um, the, the novel is uh, from Paul Tremblay uh, from 2018, I believe. And uh, he has an interesting title, The Cabin at the End of the World, which is a little play on words, as you'll see. Because what happens in the story is they go out to this cabin, remote, secluded, and uh, strangers come knocking. And there's, there's four strangers, and in fact, there were strangers to each other, but they were all experiencing these visions about the end of the world. And they are brought together uh, because uh, ever so often the world is about to end, and uh, someone is able to postpone it and save the world by offering themselves as a sacrifice. And uh, so these four metaphorical horsemen of the apocalypse, as it were, um, are drawn to this cabin in the woods um, to inform, to be bearers of good news, I guess, uh, at least apocalyptic news, um, that you can save the world by sacrificing yourself, but you've got to decide who's, who it's going to be. So they, they don't come as a part of the vision saying, well, it's you, uh, but they come to the family um, saying, one of you can sacrifice yourself and save the world. But of course, you know, you'll be dead. But the rest of us uh, will go on and you'll spare, you know, everybody. And of course, there's a dramatic tension about, you know, uh, who are these weirdos? <laughs> what in the world is wrong with them? And how could this possibly be the case where the, the world is going to come to an end? And there's, um, of course, proof that presents itself that maybe this is really happening. And is it really happening? And and uh, should we believe this? You know, should we even give this any credence at all? And of course, uh, as that plays on, then the other dramatic tension comes into play of, okay, well, if this really is the case, then who's it going to be? And what immediately came to my mind was, there is no dramatic tension about that question with a traditional family. Which is to say, in this novel, what you have is two men, two dads, two fathers, and a daughter. Of course, it's not going to be the, the daughter. Uh, you know, no, they just adopted this girl. They don't want to give her up, of course. And, and throughout the movie, and I guess throughout the book, too, there's kind of sort of flashbacks about how much they love each other and, and you know, what, what a wonderful couple they are. They're, they're loving people. They're not, uh, you know, backstabbing individuals or... Uh, spiteful or you know, anything like that. There's no reason to, to, to think that there's any malice there. Um, 
So these are good-hearted people. Um, so who is it going to be? Well, with a traditional family, when you consider that question, how long do you got to think about that? Half a second? Of course, it's the dad. The dad lays down his life for the family, for the world. And in fact, you think about, uh, you know, the, you're on the Titanic or something, and the boat is sinking. Who gets on the lifeboat? Women and children first. What do the dads do? They go down with the ship. That's what it means to be a father. That's what it means to be a man. And this leads us to um, consider um, Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, usually the, the, the relevant verses are, are right at the end, but I want to read through the whole chapter, which is not very long, but it really, it, it's good to know the background and the context um, for the point that he makes at the end. Um, so Paul says this, and I'm reading, uh, by the way, through the uh, Christian Standard Bible. Uh, I, I like this one because of the notes. It has notes from the church fathers. I'm a little iffy on the translation. It, it is a modern translation, but it's not um, bad as some others. Um, it's, it's pretty good overall, but, but it, it, the thing about all of these translations, this multitude of translations, why we have that is because if a publisher wants to make any money, they have to produce their own translation so they can have the rights to it and sell it and, and make a profit. So that's why we have all of these multitude of translations. Anyway, that's an aside. So Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. Remember those opening lines. Be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. And walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, a sacrifice and fragrant offering to God. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you, as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For know and recognize this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore do not become their partners, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to God, to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible. For what makes everything visible is light. Therefore it is said, Get up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Pay careful attention, then, to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise making the most of the time, because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ.
wives, submit to your husbands, as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. So immediately we see in the context of this uh, movie and the novel, um, if there is no... If, if there is no traditional couple, of man and wife, husband and wife, um, you have some dramatic tension. Who's it going to be? But if you have the traditional couple of husband and wife, obviously it's the husband who lays down his life for the family, for the wife especially, for the children involved, of course, and in this scenario, for literally the whole world. Now, of course, these are very uh, controversial uh, passages, um, these days. Um, it wasn't always like that. It was something that um, up until now was treated as pretty straightforward and frankly pretty obvious that the husband is the one who lays down his life for the sake of his bride. And of course the, the pushback on this is always wives submit to your husbands. And you might say, um, well okay maybe that might work out in a perfect world where I got a perfect man who is worthy of being submitted to. You know, but what if I got some jerk? What if I married somebody who's uh, not that great a guy and is not worthy of my submission? Um, what if it's even just a regular guy who has his own faults and so on? Um, am I to submit to that? Well, let's turn it around the other way. Husband. Are you supposed to lay down your life for her? Does she really deserve it? Is she worth dying for? What if she's a scoundrel herself? What if she's always backstabbing? What if she is unfaithful? What if she is trying to sabotage everything about your life? What if she's trying to drag you down to hell with her? Are you going to be someone who loves her sacrificially, like Christ loved the church? Yes. In fact, if you've got an unfaithful wife, in a sense, that fits the image even better um, because Christ gave his life for his bride, the church. God loved us even while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Um, Jesus laid down his life for a sinful world, for a sinful church, to purify her and make her clean and acceptable and holy. 
And it is in that self-sacrificial love that we find um, the meaning of true love, the gift of the self, and we find how to live and, and how to be joined in communion with God and with one another and so on. There's a, a wonderful uh, comment on this from St. John Chrysostom, the uh, ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople. He says, have you noted the measure of obedience? Pay attention to love's high standard. If you take the premise that your wife should submit to you, as the church submits to Christ, then you should also take the same kind of careful, sacrificial thought for her that Christ takes for the church. Even if you must offer your own life for her, you must not refuse. Even if you must undergo countless struggles on her behalf, and have all kinds of things to endure and suffer. You must not refuse. Even if you suffer all this, you have still not done as much as Christ has for the church. For you are already married when you act this way, whereas Christ is acting for one who has rejected and hated him. So just as he, when she was rejecting, hating, spurning, and nagging him, brought her to trust him by his great solitude, not by threatening, lording it over her, or intimidating her, or anything like that. So you must also act toward your wife. Even if you see her looking down on you, nagging and despising you, you will be able to win her over with your great love and affection for her. So obviously that's a big part of the piece of the puzzle of the finding meaning in this story, about the gay couple, about the child, about the end, the cabin at the end of the world, <laughs> in two senses, you know, the cabin in the middle of nowhere, and also the cabin when the apocalypse is happening. And also we should keep in mind, as we think about this, that um, things are not following in a biblical fashion in, in terms of, um, you know, the book of Revelation or something like that. Um, the world is coming to an end. Um, that's about the barest uh, similarity. There's this metaphorical for horsemen of the apocalypse, but the authors are just you know, kind of drawing on tropes that everyone is familiar with. There's no parallel to the biblical story or anything like that going on. There's just the, the end of the world is happening. For some reason, these people say that it can be stopped. It, the world can be saved if one of us will lay down his life for the world and for his own family. Who is it going to be? It's interesting, the whole scenario, and I wonder if the original author and if Shyamalan, in choosing the story, made any connection between Sodom and Gomorrah, the end, the destruction of those cities, divine intervention, and the apocalypse for the whole world. Is judgment coming upon the whole world because we have accepted unnatural vice, celebrated it, made it a fashionable thing. When I was looking up, uh, reading reviews about this movie, um, it was just nauseating. All of the celebration and um, vitriol and, and uh, just, oh, how wonderful it is that, you know, this gay couple and, oh, meet the, meet the fabulous, you know, gay actors who played this couple in Shyamalan's new movie and so on. It's just so over the top and, and ridiculous, frankly. Um, now, certainly, um, Unnatural Vice has already found its favor in the public eye. Um, so I don't know if this is just 
uh, a reflection of extended celebration um, about that fact, or if there's some kind of um, insecurity in that, that we gotta, we got to spike the ball, we got to run at the score, because the, the threat against it is still real or something like that. Who knows? It's an interesting thing to, to ponder uh, in our society about uh, why all the celebration. But you might say that, that um, marriage was celebrated before that, so it's, it's something that wh whatever it is you value, you, uh, you enshrine and make holy and uh, celebrate and, and uh, so on, uh, just to keep it that way, to, uh, to make it a special thing. So you have the, the intriguing background of the setting. Is that something they were conscious of? Is that something that played into their stories? Or is that something that um, they were totally oblivious to, the context, the setting? This is one of those sins that cries out to God in heaven for divine intervention, for vengeance. Are they referring to that? Are they saying anything about that? Um, I don't know. I wonder if uh, the film, or the, or the book for that matter, uh, makes any reference to it or uh, um, has any awareness of it at all. I know there's a lot of, because I've read about it, a lot of kind of, uh, at least in the movie, uh, celebration of the couple. That, you know, they're the, they really do love each other and, and they're just, a, you know, sort of the perfect couple. And uh, it almost sounds to me, and I haven't seen it yet, but it almost sounds to me a bit over the top. Like, okay, what do you have to prove here? Um, and perhaps there's sub, sub, subversiveness in that, in the storytelling about the meaning of the whole thing, um, about maybe this really isn't God's design, maybe this really isn't uh, such a holy thing, maybe this really isn't what a perfect couple is, uh, and we got to kind of spike the ball and run up the score and make it look better than it is. Um, by playing on how genuinely they have affection for one another. But affection is not everything. That's not what marriage is about. Um, it's a part of it, certainly. And, uh, you know, people can have feelings for each other, and po good positive feelings, but that's not everything. That's not the measure of everything. Whereas we've gotten into that kind of uh, rut in thinking about moral questions and so on. We've gotten to the, to the, to the Wendy's moral theology of do what feels right. <laughs> but that's, uh, that's not a good approach, especially to uh, uh, your diet. <laughs> do what feels right. Uh, but it worked for Wendy's. Uh, and uh, I was happy to oblige whenever I went to Wendy's. Anyway, that's an aside. Um, so I think about the context, think about the tighter context of the individual family here. So you've got two men who have married. Of course, there's no possibility of them having offspring in the natural way, all by themselves. That's not how that works. So they either need to have a surrogate of some kind, or they need to adopt. And here I'll get into the real spoilers about how the story ends. And there's a divergence between the novel and the movie. So in the novel, what happens is um, they're skeptical about this whole scenario right to the end. Uh, so some very persuasive evidence comes their way. They're tempted to think, well, 
maybe this is real, maybe we do need to, to choose, uh, but they're unwilling to choose. And part of that really is you got two fathers. And if you got two fathers, two husbands, you, you don't have a father. There is no real man in this scenario that is to lay down his life for his bride. And so it's like there's no, there's no way forward in that dilemma. So they're like kept in skepticism about this whole thing. But at some point, uh, I think it's because maybe there's an argument about, well, well maybe we should just to hedge our bets. Um, maybe it's, it's worth it even if, if we're not 100% certain. And so there's some kind of wrestling with a gun. The gun goes off accidentally in the struggle. And of course, it shoots the girl. And uh, she, I guess her death uh, spares the world. Or, or well, no, it, it doesn't spare the world because it's not a voluntary thing. It's, it's basically an accidental homicide. And that was the other interesting thing, by the way. There was one article I read that basically characterized the death here not as a sacrifice, but as a murder. And, you know, what kind of God, and repeatedly used God with a lowercase g, you know, what kind of God would want us to murder uh, people? And, in fact, uh, in the, let me see if I can find it here, in the novel, um, there might be another one here. In the novel, uh, the ending is rather bleak. Uh, so they decide to... Um, Oh, where is it? Sorry to have this dead air. Uh, I just want to get it right. There it is. So uh, Andrew and Eric are the two men. Eric is uh, the more spiritually minded of the two, and he's more the one who is beginning to think, maybe this is a real thing. Andrew tends to be the one that stays more skeptical. Um... So the, uh, also the, the horsemen of the apocalypse, um, for whatever reason, they end up each having to take their own lives at certain points along the way. And so the, the horsemen kill themselves as the story goes on. You get more evidence that, uh, yes, indeed, the world is um, caving in on itself and, and the apocalypse is happening. Um, and then finally, the fourth uh, last horseman kills himself. Andrew and Eric are left with the same choice. As in the film, either one kills the other or the other way around, but in the book, they reject it. Focus on this, Andrew says. They expect us to believe that when the daughter's death isn't a good enough sacrifice for their God. So because it wasn't a voluntary thing, uh, it doesn't work. It doesn't save the world. You know, they still have to choose one of them. And so they're left down, you know, is it going to be one of us or what? So they said, they expect us to believe that when's death isn't a good enough sacrifice for their God. So you know what? F them and their God. F them all. If these are the rules the, the world runs by, maybe the world isn't worth saving. And so they wait to see what happens next, vowing to face whatever it is as one. And then the movie ends. And one of the things that's intriguing to me is you've got um, this scenario of the couple, the, the last choice for a f option for a future, the daughter, who could have offspring, is dead. And then the two gay men are self-centered enough, unwilling to lay down their lives, and they seal the fate of the world. 
And so that's in the novel. That's the novel's ending. Um, and I, I wouldn't think the novelist is a traditionalist. Um, I just don't have that suspicion. Uh, I'm sure that it was celebrated as, you know, an exciting new gay novel and so on. But I think it's kind of one of those things where the novel ends up making the opposite point that the author wanted to make, um, if indeed he really wanted to make any point in the first place. But certainly he would have his own perspective on this. So what's different about the movie? In the movie, it's a little bit, di- bit different. Um, like we said in the movie, there is no typical Shyamalan plot twist in the end. Uh, really, the whole thing is about, um, I think, subverting our expectations and what's the deeper meaning here. And I'm curious if Shyamalan perhaps is a closet traditionalist. Because I'm as more I think about it, this is like, this is the kind of subversive novel movie I would want to make. <laughs> Where it kind of gets you to accept certain points without realizing that you've crossed that line and accept them. You know, and in the end, it's like it seals the argument. So anyway, what happens in the in the movie? So in the movie, there's a like we said this this straight line to a train wreck. Uh, they become convinced that there is an apocalypse going on. Somebody does need to die. So what happens? One of them agrees to die. Basically, one of them mans up, if you will, and then um, they're left with. Um, the, I forget if it's Eric or if it's Andrew, but anyway, um, one of them is, is, is left being basically the, the wife, um, emasculated, certainly no man, and uh, takes the daughter, and uh, they drive away. And there's sort of a parallel, I forget what the name of the song is on the radio, but uh, they were listening to it as they were driving in, and it's like, you know, what a happy world, and something like that. And then there's a parallel as they're driving away where they hear the same song. And at first, um, he shuts it off and then he turns it back on. And I'm like, no, 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 shuts it off. No, no, turns it back on. We, we are determined to have a happy ending. Um, the world has been wrecked because it's sort of gone halfway through the apocalypse. But uh, at least there's some people left. And uh, here we are with a father and daughter um, and in this non-traditional family that has uh, no hope of um, having any children in the natural way, except for the daughter, who has her own possibility for the future. So I'm, I'm intrigued by all this. I'm still thinking about it. I wonder what you might think about it. If you want to comment down below or send me an email, please do. And uh, at some point, I guess, I'll, I'll see this sooner, maybe later. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, I definitely want to see it at some point. And um, if I do, if I find sort of more to say, uh, then I might uh, do this again. But otherwise, we will see you next time. God bless.